Hello, greetings everybody, and welcome to Eddie Hurst podcast version of Eddie Hurst comedy version of Jeff Wayne's musical version of H.G. Wells' literary version via Orson Welles' radio version and Steven Spielberg's film version of The War of the Worlds, because of course it is! That is a perfectly reasonable title for anybody to choose in their life, uh, and why would it not be? Here we are, chapter nine! Uh, well, I mean, if, if, if chapter nine of book two, uh, that we've already been, had one chapter nine, uh, and of course this is the penultimate chapter of the whole book. I mean, what a journey we've been on. We we started in 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 Woking, Surrey. We've been to London. That was the last chapter, Dead London. And now now we're we're, we're trying to get back, I guess, maybe to where we started. In the grand roundabout that is life, we've entered via one exit, gone all the way round and accidentally gone off the same way. Or maybe on purpose if we wanted to get back to the surfaces. Well, I, I don't need to explain the metaphor, it's sweaty enough. For those of you joining me for the first time, welcome! Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is the second to last chapter of the book, so um, I'd really recommend going back and, and listening to the rest uh, from chapter one, because th- this is going to get spoiler heavy in a few minutes when I, when I talk about what to look forward to. But essentially, this is a sort of audio scrapbook of the sci-fi classic novel The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, where each episode we read a chapter, we take it apart, we add in jokes, we put tangents in, deep dives of information, sometimes interviews with academics, and sometimes I'm joined by personal comedy friends who do characters or musical comedy guests who create their own songs, like I've done in this chapter. The penultimate one. So, uh, last chapter, chapter eight, Dead London. The Martians, done. They're gone. What happened to them? Germs. That's right, who saw that come in? Well, for most people who've lived through 2020, everyone. But they're gone, and that's the important bit. Uh, And now we see the wreckage, the damage they have wrought upon us. Uh, What's going to happen with the narrator? Is he going to find his family? Uh, Is he going to? Is his house going to be all right? I don't know. We're going to find out. Um, Is there going to be a song which, when I started it, I thought was going to be a disco song, and then kind of turned into a Johnny Cash-inspired country song about being the last living man alive? Yes, there is also going to be that. So, buckle in and get ready. Before we start, though, if you haven't already, please do like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help let other people find the show. Talk about it on social media. You can follow me at E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, You can go to my website, eddiehurst.co.uk, if you want to sign up to my mailing list. And why wouldn't you? Because guess what? This podcast is going on a live tour. What? Yes, it is. It's a tour of the world. I hope you enjoy the pun there. Uh, where we are going, I'm going around. Uh, I'm going around England, performing the show that went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So we are starting in a couple of weeks' time now at Leicester Comedy Festival on the 18th of February at the LCB Depot. Then on the 23rd, we're at Square Chapel Art in Halifax. 30th of March, Old Court Wigan. 13th of April, Tom Thumb Theatre. 14th of April, Arch Depot London. And then on the 4th of June, we're wrapping up this part of the tour at the Lowry in Salford. So come along, defeat the Martians with me. Why not? It's been recommended by the British Comedy Guide. It was nominated for the best show at Buxton Fringe, so people like it. And you can find out all those details in the episode description and also on my website and social media. But for now, let's dive in. Chapter 8. Wreckage. And now comes the strangest thing in my story. Yet, perhaps, it is not altogether strange. I remember, clearly and coldly and vividly, 
all that I did that day until the time that I stood weeping and praising God upon the summit of Primrose Hill. And then I forget. I mean, that all sounds fair, right? You know, I've said it once and I'll say it again. Maybe the real invaders in this story is just not addressing our feelings and being honest with ourselves, Right? Right? Hello? Of the next three days, I know nothing. I have learned since that, so far from being the first discoverer of the Martian overthrow, several such wanderers as myself had already discovered this on the previous night. Describing the Martian's defeat by bacteria as an, as an overthrow does really seem a charitable description there, doesn't it? I mean, they, it was, it's really the, the Martians on themselves. I don't, I don't really think you can overthrow yourselves if you've not planned properly. You know, prepare to fail. Failed to... No. They failed to prepare. So... The, the Martians have failed to prepare. So they So they were prepared to... F fail. I don't... I don't like that phrase. One man, the first, had gone to St. Martin's Le Grand, and, while I sheltered in the cabman's hut, had contrived to telegraph to Paris. Thence the joyful news had flashed all over the world, a thousand cities, chilled by ghastly apprehensions, suddenly flashed into frantic illuminations. They knew that in Dublin, Edinburgh, Manchester, Birmingham, at the time when I stood upon the verge of the pit. I've been joking throughout the book, like that, oh, it looks like it's only the 75 mile square radius of London that's been invaded by the Martians. They didn't get to Dublin, they didn't get to Edinburgh, they didn't get to Manchester, they didn't get to Birmingham, they didn't get to Paris, so they just attacked London and then lost, like, that is actually the st I thought that was a joke! I thought that was a joke, but that's actually it! <laughs> Definitely another point towards it just being called Fighters from Mars like it was originally going to be called, or maybe change the title to, like, War of the World and Two Halves of two counties. Already men, weeping with joy, as I have heard, shouting and staying their work to shake hands and shout, were making up trains, even as near as crew, to descend upon London. The church bells that had ceased a fortnight since suddenly caught the news, until all England was bell ringing. Men on cycles, lean-faced, unkempt, scorched along every country lane, shouting of unhoped deliverance, shouting to gaunt, staring figures of despair. And for the food. Across the Channel, across the Irish Sea, across the Atlantic, corn, bread and meat were tearing to our relief. All the shipping in the world seemed going Londonward in those days. Oh, uh, all resources and uh, support being, being directed towards London. Oh, I wouldn't know what that feels like. How unusual for London to be taking all the resources uh, and, and, and sitting on them and making the decisions about how to manage them. It's just strange. It's just a strange thing. But of all this, I have no memory. I drifted. A demented man. I found myself in a house of kindly people who had found me on the third day wandering, weeping and raving through the streets of St. John's Woods. They told me since that I was singing some insane doggerel about the last man left alive. Hurrah! The last man left alive! Are we ready, boys? Oh, boys? Is anybody else here? Hello? Last man left alive. Last man left alive. Last man left alive. Last man left alive. Well, that's me. We 
as they were with their own affairs, these people, whose name, much as I would like to express my gratitude to them, I may not even give here, nevertheless cumbered themselves with me, sheltered me, and protected me from myself. Apparently they had learned something of my story during the days of my lapse. Very gently, when my mind was assured again, did they break to me what they had learnt of the fate of Leatherhead. Two days after I was imprisoned, it had been destroyed, with every soul in it, by a Martian. He had swept it out of existence, as it seemed, without any provocation, as a boy might crush an anthill, in the mere wantonness of power. Warning! Metaphor alert! Metaphor alert! I mean, it's more of a more of an analogy, uh, or a bit of imagery, than it is uh, than it is a metaphor. But still, it's it's it, it's the the jingle that we've got for it. So we're going to use it for the theme that we've seen so often running through the story, which is, of course, the idea of of humans being treated like animals, being subjugated. You know, basically the message is it'd be horrible to be invaded, wouldn't it? Could you imagine being invaded? What a nightmare! Imagine being treated like an animal. That'd be horrible. Better not do that to. Imagine doing that to people, let alone animals. Could you imagine doing that? Could you even think what it'd be like to to treat people like animals? Oh, glad nobody's ever done that in, 
History of Britain. I was a lonely man, and they were very kind to me. I was a lonely man, and a sad one, and they bore with me. I remained with them four days after my recovery. All that time I felt a vague, growing craving to look once more on whatever remained of the little life that seemed so happy and bright in my past. He had it all. Obscure philosophical papers. A bike he couldn't ride. A friend who owned a telescope. A wife that the relationship seems like, if, 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 if not cold, that he's got, he's, he's struggling to prioritise. It was a mere hopeless desire to feast upon my misery. They dissuaded me. They did all they could to divert me from this morbidity. But at last I could resist the impulse no longer, and, promising faithfully to return to them, and parting, as I will confess, from these four-day friends with tears, I went out again into the streets that had lately been so dark and strange and empty. Confess the shame, oh, of feeling an emotion after leaving people who have shown you the most profound kindness you may very well ever experience in your life. After surviving the darkest period in mankind's history up to this point, they took you in whilst you were, quite frankly, singing a, a pretty well-made song, if, if we dare say so, actually, and they looked after you, they cared for you, they, they stopped you from going into the dark pit that is depression, and you know what, mate? What do you do after you leave them? You have a little, oh, you have a little cry? That's absolute, that's fine. That is absolutely fine. It's not like, that's not a big confession. I think, I think you're all right there, buddy. I think you're all right there. I've said it once and I'll say it again. Perhaps the real invaders of this story is not being honest with our feelings. And, and also the Martians. The Martians and toxic masculinity. Already they were busy with returning people. In places even there were shops open, and I saw a drinking fountain running water. I remember how mockingly bright the day seemed as I went back on my melancholy pilgrimage to the little house at Woking. How busy the streets and vivid moving life about me. So many people were abroad everywhere, busied in a thousand activities, that it seemed incredible that any proportion of the population could have been slain. But then I noticed how yellow the skins of the people I met, how shaggy the hair of the men, how dirty and bright their eyes, and that every other man still wore his dirty rags. Their faces seemed all with one or two expressions, a leaping exultation, an energy, or a grim resolution. I mean, I know he hasn't had a mirror around whilst he's been escaping the Martians, but they look exactly how you look. They're feeling the exact same things that you felt. Like, I know that, I know that the book is meant to be a report of, like, sort of the facts that he's, he's experienced, but give him, give him a break, man. Like, oh, I wonder why these people seemed happy that they survived the Martians, but also sad that Martians invaded. The, the answer is in the question. Save for the expression of the faces, London seemed a city of tramps. I know you've just survived a Martian invasion, but that's no excuse for letting appearance standards slip, is it now? What have we really lost, our capital city or our sense of decorum? The vestries were indiscriminately distributing bread sent to us by the French government. Technically, I think you'll find that's actually a baguette. Sorry, I will let the story roll on for a bit longer now. The ribs of the few horses showed dismally. Haggard special constables with white badges stood at the corners of every street. I saw little of the mischief wrought by the Martians until I reached Wellington Street, 
And there I saw the red weed clambering over the buttresses of Waterloo Bridge. At the corner of the bridge, too, I saw one of the common contrasts of that grotesque time. A sheet of paper flaunting against a thicket of the red weed, transfixed by a stick that kept it in place. It was the placard of the first newspaper to resume publication. The Daily Mail. Oh, come on! Even an invasion can't stop them. I mean, to be fair though, if anybody is going to rush to the news complaining about aliens, it is the Daily Mail, innit? I bought a copy for a blackened shilling I found in my pocket. Most of it was in blank. But the solitary compositor who did the thing had amused himself by making a grotesque scheme of advertisement stereo on the back page. The matter he printed was emotional. The news organisation had not as yet found its way back. I learnt nothing fresh, except that already in one week the examination of the Martian mechanisms had yielded astonishing results. Yeah, we made a hell of a discovery. It looks, looks like Martians have been to Earth. Among other things, the article assured me what I did not believe at the time, that the secret of flying was discovered. At Waterloo, I found the free trains that were taking people to their homes. The first rush was already over. There were few people in the train, and I was in no mood for casual conversation. Oh, hiya. Uh, you up to anything nice at the weekend? Nah, just, uh, just trying to see if my family got obliterated by a heat ray. Oh yeah, me too. Uh, weather, weather looks nice, doesn't it? I got a compartment to myself and sat with folded arms, looking greyly at the sunlit devastation that flowed past the window. Yeah, I do the same thing if I'm on a train and I don't want anyone sitting next to me. Mind you, mind you, I'm not about to get on a completely empty train to myself after surviving a Martian invasion, so... I don't know, some ways I can relate, other ways I can't. And just outside the terminus, the rail... And just outside the terminus, the train jolted over temporary rails. And on either side of the railway, the houses were blackened ruins. To Clapham Junction, the face of London was grimy, with powder of the black smoke, in spite of two days of thunderstorms and rain. And at Clapham Junction, the line had been wrecked again. There were hundreds of out-of-work clerks and shopmen working side by side with the customary navvies, and we were jolted over a hasty relaying. The least believable part of this whole story is that they haven't been put on replacement bus services. Am I right, guys? All down the line from there, the aspect of the country was gaunt and unfamiliar. Wimbledon particularly had suffered. Walton, by virtue of its unburned pine woods, seemed the least hurt of any place along the line. The Wandle, the Mole, every little stream was a heaped mass of red weed, in appearance between butcher's meats and pickled cabbage. The Surrey pine woods were too dry, however, for the festoons of the red climber. Beyond Wimbledon, within sight of the line, in certain nursery grounds, were the heaped masses of earth about the sixth cylinder. A number of people were standing about it, and some sappers were busy in the midst of it. Over it flaunted a Union Jack, flapping cheerfully in the morning breeze. Yes, those Martian bish were conquered by good old-fashioned British germs. Raise the flag for British germs. We've conquered this mound of dirt. The nursery grounds were everywhere crimson with the weed, a wide expanse of livid colour cut with purple shadows, and very painful to the eye. One's gaze went with infinite relief 
from the scorched greys and sullen reds of the foreground to the blue-green softness of the eastward hills. The line on the London side of Woking Station was still undergoing repair, so I descended at Byfleet Station and took the road to Maybury, past the place where I and the artillerymen had talked to the Hustars, and on by the spot where the Martian had appeared to me in the thunderstorm. Here, moved by curiosity, I turned aside to find, among a tangle of red fronds, the warped and broken dogcart with the whitened bones of the horses scattered and gnawed. For a while, I stood regarding these vestiges. <laughs> Memories all alone by the red. Then I returned through the pinewood, neck high with red weed here and there, to find the landlord of the spotted dog had already found burial, and so came home past the college arms. A man standing at an open cottage greeted me by name as I passed. What is his name? What is his name? Absolute tease. But we know he has one, and that's a real mystery we've resolved. I looked at my house with a quick flash of hope that faded immediately. The door had been forced. It was unfast and was opening slowly as I approached. I've said it once and I'll say it again. Perhaps the real villains of this novel are burglars. Wait, no, I've never said that. It slammed again. The curtains of my study fluttered out of the open window from which I and the artillerymen had watched the dawn. No one had closed it since. The smashed bushes were just as I had left them nearly four weeks ago. I stumbled into the hall, and the house felt empty. The stair carpet was ruffled and discoloured where I had crouched, soaked to the skin from the thunderstorm the night of the catastrophe. Our muddy footsteps I saw still went up the stairs. I followed them to the study, and found lying on my writing table still, with the selenite paperweight upon it, the sheet of work I had left on the afternoon of the opening of the cylinder. For a space, I stood reading over my abandoned arguments. It was a paper on the probable development of moral ideas with the development of the civilising process. Yeah, obviously it was. And I'm sure that has no, uh, no, 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 no relevance to, to being put in the story in any particular way, so I'm just going to move on, because I definitely understood what that title meant. And the last sentence was the opening of a prophecy. In about 200 years, I had written, we may expect. The sentence ended abruptly. I remembered my inability to fix my mind that morning, scarcely a month gone by, and how I had broken off to get my daily chronicle from the newsboy. I remembered how I went down the garden gate as he came along, and how I had listened to his odd story of men from Mars. I came down and went into the dining room. There were the mutton and the bread, both far gone now in decay, and a beer bottle overturned, just as I and the artillerymen had left them. My home was desolate. 
I perceived the folly of the faint hope I had cherished so long. This is pretty. This is like, you know, it's been a, a third of the chapter has been him unsuccessfully finding anyone in his house. And that is pretty heartbreaking. He's been through all of this and then he comes home and we know it's unlikely that he's going to have found anyone. I mean, even if even if his wife has survived, is she going to is she going to have made her way back home yet? I don't I don't know. How would you even know these sorts of things in those days? And then a strange thing occurred. It is of no use, said a voice. The house is deserted. No one has been here these ten days. Do not stay here to torment yourself. No one escaped but you. I was startled. Had I spoken my thought aloud? I turned, and the French window was open behind me. I made a step to it, and stood looking out. And there, amazed and afraid, even as I stood amazed and afraid, were my cousin and my wife, my wife, white and tearless. She gave a faint cry. I came. She said. I knew I... She put her hand to her throat, swayed. I made a step forward and caught her in my arms. Well, I think you'll all join me in giving a, a good old... That's it, he's, he's reunited with his wife. And it sounds like he, he loves her and she loves him. Which, I mean, given given the rest of the book, is quite a turnout, isn't it? Because uh, his actions certainly d didn't seem to say that. Not that he was having, like, affairs or, or, or slagging her off or anything, but, he, he, you know, they said they were going to meet somewhere and then he just chose not to for, for most of the book. Uh, but he's here. He may not have learnt to ride a bike, but he has learnt to build healthy relationships and, I think, be a little more honest emotionally with himself. And at the end of the day, if you can't do that during a Martian invasion... What can you do? Loads of stuff, I know. It was a rhetorical question. You don't need to, don't need to tell me. But that was it. Chapter 9, Wreckage. I hope you enjoyed it, guys. Uh, thank you so much. And I'll see you for, for the next episode, which is Chapter 10, Epilogue. Ooh, probably, ooh, probably the most enigmatic title yet. I wonder what that's about. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please do rate, review, subscribe, and share it on social media. You can find me at edyhurst on instagram twitter facebook and if you didn't enjoy it i mean uh, thanks at least for listening this long I'm, I'm, I'm amazed you made it to the post amble but fair play and also on my website eddiehurst.co.uk you can sign up to my mailing list come see the show on tour uh like i said at the top um we're going to we're going all over the place we're starting 18th february a Leicester comedy festival and also that very same day you can see my new show which is called the wonderful discovery of witchcraft in the county of eddie hurst it's a show that looks at weirdness the lancashire witch trials and the venger boys so a, a very normal one from me that's the same day at five o'clock at Peter Pizzeria as part of the Leicester Comedy Festival. Peter Pizzeria, that's a, that's a hell of a tongue twister. And also, for anybody who's used to talking into a microphone, a real risk of pop. So good work to me just then. A special thanks as well uh, th this episode to uh, Julianne Eskerton, who you can follow at Julianne Eskerton, and Lauren Kelly Casting, uh, who put me in touch with them for the great job uh, in that little line at the end you heard as a wife. So thank you very much, guys. I will see you for the next chapter, which is Epilogue. Bye!